This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of page 1071. And basically, we learned last week that what's the genuine path to Teshuvah, to change, and that the change should be permanent and enduring, the way is by first evoking compassion. Because compassion stirs your soul. In order to have compassion, you have to have a soul. And when you have compassion in your soul, you sense that you have a soul. You're dealing with something very real. You're dealing with a soul. And then you realize that the things that you've done, the damage that you've done to you, the hurt that you've inflicted, the pain that you've inflicted. If you have no sense of your soul, you have no sense of, there's no reality, there's no consequences to your actions. Then life is just a video game. There are no consequences, it's a game. Well, you made a mistake. Say you did something wrong. What's a big deal? Change the cartridge and, and move on. <laughs> yes, if life is a video game, that's true. But life is not a video game. You have a soul. And if you can sense your soul, and you realize the reality of it, and then you realize everything that we do, the soul is so sensitive, so alive, that the slightest thing that we do registers and has an effect and has an impact. And the soul is acutely in pain every time we tell a lie, every time we do something wrong. Just like our body. Our body is so complex. Made up of a hundred trillion cells. Everything that we ate, every piece of junk food that we ever ate, <laughs> the body doesn't forgive and doesn't forget. Because it's real. It accumulates. After a while, you, 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 know, you lay it on thick. After a while, it has an effect. But the soul, how much more so the soul, the soul is so real, the soul is so sensitive, the soul is so delicate. That everything that we do, we think, we speak, we act, even an attitude, if we do something wrong, it's like, it's like an assault on the soul. We've assaulted the soul. And the soul feels it and senses it. So when you start having rahmanas, you start having compassion on your soul, and you start evoking, awakening this, the mercy and the compassion on your soul. What have I done to my soul? How cruel could I be? I don't care about myself. Why don't I care about my soul? And then if you go to the source of the soul, ultimate source of the soul in the, in the life, in the life of life, in the source of life, and within the divine, within Hashem, when you do something wrong, we do something wrong, we also affect, not only us, we affect the source of the soul, like the analogy of the rope. We're schlepping down all that energy, all that divine energy into. 
And ultimately, that doesn't evoke any mercy and compassion. What about the damage that we do to God himself, Hashem? Because since we're so in- connected with Hashem, God is with us. And whatever we do, we take Hashem, the divine name, and we take it down with us into the gutter, into the dungeon. Can you imagine taking the king of kings, taking Hashem himself and bringing him into the torture chamber? So when you start evoking passion and compassion for what you've done, you start getting a reality, a sense of what you've done. Then it's much more genuine. Then you're more likely to change. Because you realize that there's something very real here. You're moved. You're touched very deeply. It's only when something stirs inside of you and you're moved and touched very deeply that you will create lasting change, permanent change. Otherwise, if you're just forcing yourself, submitting yourself, it won't last. It has no lasting power. It has no staying power. Because nothing touched you inside. It could be very harsh. You're very harsh on yourself. You beat yourself into submission. And you whip yourself into shape. How long does that last? Two and a half days. <laughs> if you're lucky. It wears off. You can't, you can't. It's unnatural. But once something stirs inside of you and you feel that rahmanness and that compassion, then it's real. It's not, you're not, it's not artificial. You're not forcing something. You're not... This is you. This is you dealing with your neshama. And when you're dealing with your neshama, when you feel, realize that life is not a video game, life is real, and that we're for real, and everything that we do, say, every word that we ever said, every act that we ever did, every thought that we ever had, it says after 120 years, we will be judged on every single thing, every word we ever uttered, every single act, every moment, every thought that we ever had, every attitude. Because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Our souls are real. Everything that we do registers. Everything makes an impression. Everything has an effect, has an impact. We're so real that everything that we do really matters and really means something. If it means nothing to us, we're like a bull in a china shop. We just smash everything around us because we have no sensitivity to the china shop. But it's real. Our neshama is real, nevertheless. And that's why it's a real Rachmanus. That we have something so real and precious inside of us. And we're so oblivious. We're so insensitive. That to us, life is like a video game. Reduced to nothingness, to meaninglessness. Nihilism, just have fun. Live for the moment. Enjoy yourself for the moment. Nothing matters. Trample on everything that's real. Trample on family. Trample on anything that's real and that's enduring. And reduce life to nothing just have fun for the moment nothing matters life is a joke life is a game life is meaningless you hurt people what, what does it matter it doesn't mean anything just live your life enjoy yourself nothing means anything nothing matters the soul is so in agony such an agony how could you do this to your soul life is so real what are you doing trampling on everything that's precious and everything that's real so insensitive Life is not a video game. Life is reality. 
So once you have Rachmanus, and you realize the mercy and compassion you have, what have I done? How have I lived? What am I doing? Am I so insensitive? So obtuse? So clueless? So blind, deaf, and dumb that I have no realization of what I'm doing and what's going on and the effect. You know? God loves me unconditionally. I don't feel it. My soul loves me unconditionally. I don't feel it. And I could just trample on that and throw it out and discard it and not even pay attention to it. And what did I dedicate my life to? Some nonsense. Some Madison Avenue hype. Some false friend who claims he's a friend, but he's not a friend, selling me a bunch of uh, a real snake, uh, <laughs> snake oil salesman who's selling me a bill of goods. And I, I fell for it, and I'm buying into it. This is life. This is what life is about. No responsibilities, no realities. Just have fun live for the moment, nothing matters lie, cheat, steal trample, hurt, it doesn't matter all that matters is it makes me feel good, whatever makes me feel good I, it, it's so it's such a Rachmanus it's so you have Rachmanus, you have a mercy and compassion how can I do this? how can I live like this? what am I doing? so when your Teshuvah comes from a sense of Rachmanus of mercy and compassion. Then it's enduring. Then it lasts because something stirred inside of you. Something touched you deeply inside. It's very natural. It's not like harsh and, and beating yourself into submission and, and you know, lightning is going to strike or God is going to punish me or I'm going to burn in the <laughs> eternal barbecue or, you know. That's, it's real and it's joyful. And especially <coughs> when you think about it, the Rachmanus, I can have an Hashem. Hashem loves me. God loves me unconditionally. It's so real. It's so genuine. And this is how I paid God back. This is, this is what I have done. Instead of showing my appreciation for existence, for health, for life, for success, for everything that I have, this is what I have done. I've taken God and put him into the toilet, into the dungeon. into the London Towers. I mean, how, how, what am I? What kind of person am I? How can I do this? So that's what we're up to, middle of page 1071, that you have Rachmanus on Hashem. Because the damage that we've done is not only to us, we've done damage to Hashem. We've taken His energy and we've transferred that energy transported that energy into the, into the filth that God hates and despises. We've given them a whole new surge of life because of our behavior and our sins. When a Jew sins, he gives a whole new surge of life to the negative forces which God despises. He calls it filth, vomit. He hates it. Despises. Ego. Arrogance. And we gave a whole new surge of life because the Jew is so connected so whatever we do, we can't help it. But we schlep God into it. So we've taken God's name, His personal name, His transcendent self, His infinite self, to that divine energy, 
and we've given an infusion of life, an infusion of energy into the abomination that God calls abomination, to all the forces of arrogance and ego and negativity, which completely cover up and distort the reality of Hashem. And, and, I, and it's all because of me. So you have to have Rachmanus, mercy of compassion. You have no feelings for yourself. You have no compassion on yourself. No compassion on your soul. You have no compassion on the source of your soul. Have compassion on Hashem. What did God do to you? What, 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 what do you want from what do you want from Hashem? Especially after everything He's done for us. As the verse states in the middle of page 1071. As the verse states, he shall return to Hashem and he will have compassion for him. The sinner shall return to Hashem and have compassion for him. But how are we to understand the concept of arousing mercy with a tetragrammaton? The literal meaning of the verse is, we will return when a Jew returns to Hashem, Jew does Teshuvah, then Hashem will have Rachmanus. V'yachameyu Hashem, God will have mercy on us. But the deeper meaning is, you return to Hashem, and we have compassion on Hashem. We have Rachmanus, we have mercy on God. And that's what leads us to, have, to return. Because once you evoke within yourself, you realize the compassion that you have, the pity and the compassion that you have, to God, what have I done? The damage that I have done. The harm that I have done. And you have Rachmanus. That will lead you to do Teshuvah. That will lead you to repent, to return, to reconnect, to come back home. This means arousing compassion for the life-giving power issuing from the four-letter name that has ascended by stages into the chambers of the impure Sitra-Atra to give them vitality. This descent was brought about by the deeds of man and his evil schemes and thoughts. Evil thoughts alone suffice to make the vitality descend into the chambers of the Klipo and Sitra-Atra. As the verse says, the king is bound with gutters, which is interpreted to mean that the king is bound with the gutters of the mind. So here is referring to the Zohar based on the verse in Song of Songs by King Solomon, chapter 7, verse, verse 6. And he's speaking metaphorically, and he's saying that God tells the Jewish people, your head... How beautiful and pleasant. The godly name on your head, which refers to the tefillin that a Jew wears on his head, is as beautiful and as impressive as Mount Carmel. Because it says when the non-Jew sees the Jew wearing his tefillin, he's in awe of the Jew. And this refers to the head tefillin. It's actually such a story during the, uh, during the war, the Six-Day War, the uh, Jews were, they faced off the Egyptians, or I think maybe it was in the Yom Kippur War, I'm not sure which one. They were facing the Egyptians, and I think it was the Yom Kippur War. And the Jews, in the morning, they were wearing the tefillin. And next thing they noticed, they see that the Egyptian camp, which they were facing, they were about to fight. They all picked themselves up and they ran. The Egyptians ran? The Egyptians ran. They left their shoes and ran. And they, you know, they couldn't understand. And later on, they, they caught some of them prisoners. Says, what happened? 
He says, I don't know, we're watching you. And all of a sudden, we, we, are, we see all of you are putting on something on your head. So we looked up in our Russian manuals. This is 1973, they were being supplied by Russia. We couldn't find anything in our manuals. What weapon is this? What weapons do the Jews have? So we got frightened. They thought that was a weapon? Yeah, they thought the Jews must have developed some secret weapon. You know, the smart Jews must have developed some secret weapon. They got so frightened because they couldn't even find even a hint of it in any of their manuals. So they, they dropped their shoes and ran. And they weren't wrong. That, that was our secret weapon. Putting on the tefillin. What, 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 what did they put on? The phylacteries that we wear, the tefillin, the Jews wear in the morning, we put on every morning in the, the, in the arms and the, in the head. The bar mitzvah, at the bar mitzvah, the boys put on the tefillin, they start putting on the tefillin, they bind it on the arm. Uh, Barry's going to bring you a picture, you'll see. So your head will be on you. When you wear your tefillin on your head, it's, it's as beautiful and, you, and as impressive as the tall mountains of Carmel in Haifa, you know, Mount Carmel. And then he continues. The, your crowning braid, which refers to the Nazarite who lets his hair grow. Your crowning braid is like royal purple. It befits you like, like royal clothing, royal purple. And then he says, the king is bound by the tresses, barhatim, by the tresses, the locks of hair of the Nazarite. The Nazarite can cut his hair. He has to let his hair grow. The crown of the king is associated with the Nazarite's hair because it's supposed to be very holy. The hair of the Nazarite is very holy. So God's crown, God is tied up. His crown is tied up with the locks, the tresses of the Nazarite. That's the literal meaning of the verse. The Zohar says... That rahatim means gutters, channels. You know, like when rain flows, the gutters channel the water. So the Zohar says that what, king, what King Solomon means here, that the king, Hashem, is usher, is tied up, is bound by rahatim through our channels, meaning our fleeting thoughts. When we have a negative thought, even if it's just fleeting, it just passes through our mind. God is bound up and tied up, is imprisoned by those thoughts. Because God is affected by our behavior, but not only our deeds, not only how we speak, by what we say, but God is bound up even by our thoughts. And even when we have a fleeting thought, that, like, like water that rushes in the gutters, we have a thought, and it's a negative thought. And if we dwell in it, if we have a thought and we immediately dismiss it, that's beautiful, then we do the right thing. But if we strengthen God, so to speak, but if, instead of dismissing it, we entertain the thought, because you can't stop thinking. That's why thought, like, rushes. That's why he uses the analogy of, like, the gutter. Water rushes through the gutter, because you can stop speaking. Some people could, and you can stop doing, but you can't stop thinking. Because your thought is so associated with your soul. So your mind is constantly thinking. So if you think negative thoughts... You're taking God and imprisoning. God is bound up, is tied up, is imprisoned by our thoughts. And that's what he refers to, okay, as explained. As explained by the Rebbe Shlik, the, the image is the, the various channels and gutters of the mind through which thoughts, like gushing currents, rush fleetingly. Thus, even transient evil thoughts that one harbors ephemerally can bind and shackle the king. They can exile the flow of vitality emanating from the four-letter name of Hashem.
That's what power we have over Hashem. God is a gambler. Through his faith, he put his faith in our hands. His destiny is tied up with our destiny, whether we like it or not, whether he likes it or not. That's how much confidence he has in us. That's a scare. That's a that's a, an inspiring thought. Hashem has so much confidence in us. He must be in turmoil constantly. He's in turmoil, but he has confidence in us that we'll do the right thing. Sooner or later. Right. Sure. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But that that's how much trust he has in us. Because he, he invested everything. He invested himself in us. He invested his name, his personal name, his infinite transcendent name in us. And he's in, in, he handcuffed himself to us. Wherever you go, I go. You're going to all the wrong places, you're taking me with. I, I can't help it, you can't help it. That's a fact. That's how connected a Jew is to Hashem. Whatever we do has such implication, has such an effect, not only on the whole universe, it has an effect on Hashem himself. Even the fleeting thoughts, the passing thoughts, if we dwell in negative thoughts, it, it, God is bound up and tied up and handcuffed, and we schlep him into all these bad places. And this is the meaning. Barry, you want to continue? In this state? And this state, as noted above, is the exile of the Shkina, the divine presence, the level of Malchut, kingship of the world of Aksidi. So this is the idea of exile. We talk God is in exile. The temple is destroyed. God is in exile. Because it's our inner personal temple that's destroyed. And when we are, our personal temple is destroyed, if we're not acting wholesomely, we're not acting Jewishly, we're not speaking Jewishly, we're not thinking Jewishly, if we act in a way that's unwholesome, we're thinking unwholesome thoughts, God's shechina, God's presence, is in exile. God is with us. If we're in exile, He's in exile. And godliness becomes completely concealed. So if you realize the Rahmanas, if you evoke the pity and the compassion, you realize what happens when we sin. It's unless you have an understanding, unless you have a sensitivity, a sense of what happens when we sin, how real it is, and the effects, and the impact that we're having. And that it really matters. And God cares about us so much. He can't say, who am I? I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. Nobody pays attention. What difference does it make? Who knows what I'm thinking in my mind behind closed doors? I'm thinking in the privacy of my mind. What difference does it make? Nobody knows. I'm an American. I have rights. It's a free country. We don't even realize everything that we do matters so much. Hashem cares so much. And it makes such a difference to us, to the whole universe, to our soul, the source of our soul, that God himself. So if, once you realize that, then you can start doing teshuva. Then you can really start changing. And then it has staying power. Then that change will have staying power. Because it affects you personally. It affects you deeply. Something stirs inside of you. Then it's natural. And it's joyful. It's not something negative. It's not harsh. You don't have to break yourself. It's not about breaking. It's about coming home. Just reconnecting. And returning, restoring your natural state. To be Jewish. To live Jewish. To act Jewish. To think Jewish. 
24-7 and to come home, that's the most natural thing. So if you don't realize that you have a Rembrandt and you have a hundred million dollar painting that you've just taken drunk and poured all over it and danced on it and tore it up and discarded it and dismissed it. If you think life is a video game and you think that what I have, the value of what you have is junk, so what difference does it make? I'm one of seven billion. Who knows? Who notices? Look at the whole universe. What am I? I'm a speck. I'm not worth anything. I'm an enlightened scientist. I visited the Natural Museum of, of History. And I saw the uh, planetarium. And I saw, what are we? We're just a speck of a speck of a speck. So what am I? I'm a worthless nothing. So if I'm a worthless nothing, does it matter? What difference does it make? How I behave, what I say, what I think. No one notices. No one pays attention. No one cares. And it doesn't matter. So you might as well just enjoy life, live for the moment, because life is so brief, and here we come and we go, and that's it, and nothing matters. No one, I, I, I'm forgotten even before I exist, I'm already forgotten, because it doesn't matter. That's the attitude that's taught to children today. This is what they're getting in our public schools today. What a nihilistic approach to life. What an empty, this is what they're getting in the, in the universities today. And this they call advanced and they call this education, and they call this enlightenment. This is endarkment. What are you, this is the message that you're giving to our youth, to our children. You don't matter, I don't matter, nothing matters. It's all nihilistic, it's all for nothing. Just live for the moment, have fun, have a party. Life is a party, life is a video game. It doesn't matter, there are no consequences. Versus, if you realize, How precious life is. Every one of us is a Rembrandt. Every one of us is a hundred million dollar portrait. That God created each and every one of us. Hashem himself. And we're so precious. And I'm just going to trample over this. Neglect it. Treat it as if it's nothing. This is invaluable. Every moment of my life, every day of my life, every action, everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I think is so invaluable, it's so indispensable, so precious, it's so meaningful. The whole world is waiting with bated breath. God himself is dependent on my thought. Even a passing thought. God is handcuffed to me and his faith is dependent on what I'm going to do at this moment. What, what, what a message. This should be required reading in every school in the country, every school in the world. What a message, how precious we are, how precious life is, how real it is. Everything that we do has such meaning and such consequences and so real. This could inspire us to change. This could inspire us to restore to treasure this, this, this portrait that we are. A hundred million dollar painting? Whatever. 
I'm going to trample over it? Are you kidding? I'm going to treat it special. It's special. I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to approach it properly with respect, with a little awe. Then you can do teshuva. Then you can restore. Then you can rebuild. But if you don't have this attitude, if you don't understand chassidus, if you don't, understand, if you don't study the, the letter of teshuva, of the Alter Rebbe, the whole approach is, okay, you can beat yourself into submission. Okay, God is going to punish me and I'm going to go to hell and I better get my act together. I mean, but, you know, yes, you can beat yourself into submission, but it doesn't have any lasting power. It doesn't have any staying power. It's harsh. It's unnatural. You can isolate yourself, run away from the world, escape, and just bury yourself in the bury your head in the sand and divorce yourself. It, it's, the whole thing is so unnatural. It's surreal. But if you want to restore yourself, and we are a microcosm, you want to restore the world, you want the world to be restored to its natural state. You want this world and our little world, which is a microcosm of the whole world, to be restored, to live a wholesome life, to live a meaningful life, to live an uplifting life. Life is not a jungle. It doesn't have to be a jungle. Life could be so real and so beautiful and so ennobling and so uplifting and so joyful. To start restoring that world, the whole world, which begins with restoring our own personal world, the microcosm, this can only come from an understanding. When you have an understanding of what's involved here, that we're a portrait, we're so real, and everything that we do is real and has such an effect and such an impact, and God cares so much, then it changes everything. Then you want to change. Then you're open to change. It's like the famous competition between the sun and the wind. Who can get a person to undress? The wind says, yeah, and the more the wind was blowing, the more a person put on another layer of clothes, another layer of clothes, another layer of clothes. Finally, the wind gave up. The sun says, okay, let me try my magic. The sun gets warmer, takes off his coat, gets warmer, takes off the sweater, takes off. When you warm a person up from the inside, which can only come from chasidus, it warms you in neshama stirs your neshama, you have a neshama, there's something real going on inside. It's not just like harsh, like a you know, fire and brimstone, you know, it's, 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 it's gentle. It's with sensitivity. Then, automatically you shed all those layers and all those defenses, all that nonsense. You just shed it. I, want to, I just want to do the real thing, I just want to do the right thing. I want to come home. I want to do the right thing. I'm a Jew. I want to live like a Jew and act like a Jew and think like a Jew and speak like a Jew. Then it has lasting power. Then it's emes. Then you can do tshuva with an emes. Now he's going to say, when is the best time? There's an auspicious time. There's the right time when you're in the mood, when the universe is in the mood. There's a right time to dwell and focus and stir up your soul and Realize that you have a soul and realize the source of your soul and realize the connection you have with Hashem and how real we are and how much Hashem invests in us. There's a time for it. There's a time to get into the mood and to really 
be inspired by, this, by these thoughts? When is the right time? The auspicious time for this arousal of compassion is Tikkun Hatzvah, the midnight lament for the exile of the Divine Presence. As pointed out in the note to Tikkun Hazot in the Siddur, see there at In the olden days, it was more prevalent than it is today. Today it's very rare, but not everyone, but very special Jews who were very in tune would wake up at midnight. They would go to sleep right after the evening service, have their dinner, go to sleep, sleep the first half of the night. When America is going to sleep, they would wake up. They would wake up at midnight and they would lament the destruction of the temple, the exile of the Jewish people, the fact that Mashiach hasn't come. And they would so put ashes on their head. This is the time that they would do tshuva. This is the time that they would arouse compassion. In other words, they would do tshuva which, which in the morning. Which, <laughs> no, which, is, which leads to tshuva. When you arouse compassion, right, but that's that is tshuva. That's happening at, right, at the middle of the night. Right. Middle of the night is the time to do tshuva, but it is the time to tshuva by arousing compassion. When you realize that God is in exile, you realize that we're in exile. We're in exile from ourselves. We're alienated from our own true selves. And you realize that, that the divine energy is an exile. God is an exile. And you lament the destruction of your personal temple. The destruction of the temple is just a reflection of our inner destruction. And it's a time when they would put ashes in their head and they would cry and lament the destruction of the temple. At night, this is the time to arouse mercy and compassion. You know, at night, there's a time of intimacy, especially at midnight. It's a time of intimacy. So when the temple is destroyed, and which disrupted the intimacy of the Jew and God, we're in exile. We're like homeless. We've separated, God forbid. So this is a time of intimacy when the Jew misses the most. You miss that intimacy and you miss and you dwell in that relationship and that connection. And you realize that we've harmed this relationship and we've disrupted this beautiful relationship. Therefore God is in exile. God is homeless. God has no home. God is homeless. Could you imagine? We're sitting in our houses, in our apartments and God is homeless. This is a good time to say Psalms. That's, when you, that's part of the, the... There's a whole order. Which includes Psalms. So, you know, you want to campaign for the homeless? At midnight, that's a time to... <laughs> because the ultimate homeless, God himself is homeless. He's exiled. He's homeless. But when you realize... And that's on a broader, on a global scale. When you realize where does it all begin on a personal scale. Because of my behavior, because of my actions, because of my thoughts. I have caused God to be home. And worse than that, it's one thing you're on the street, you're homeless. It's another thing as a result of my actions, not only is God homeless, but God is actually in the dungeon. He's not homeless, he has a home. It's called a prison. <laughs> it's called a dungeon. So when you realize this is a time to awaken the Rachmanus, a time to awaken, to stir your heart, stir your soul, to realize the reality of it. How life is so real. How real we are and how precious we are.
with remembrance how real all of this is. Everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think is so real. So this is the time to really dwell in it. And that's when the heart is open. At midnight, the heart is open. It's just a fact. That's a time of intimacy, husband and wife. It's a time when the hearts are open. The Rebbe would have his private audiences at night. Because at night, that's when the, t- the hearts are open. You can have a heart-to-heart discussion. It's, it's a very intimate time. It's a very special time. So this is a time when the heavens themselves are crying. The heavens themselves, the whole universe is in a state of feeling that mercy and that compassion and that, that, on the status quo and the whole state of being where we're at and the reality of it all. And the heartbreaking, the wrenching, the gut-wrenching heartbreak of it all. Because we're so in exile. We're so, this is so unnatural. We're so out of touch. This is so, so far from our true state of being. Because the true state of being is that we are Rembrandt. We're so precious. And our relationship is so real and so vibrant. And yet we're so disconnected. It's enough to make you cry. So those Jews who were sensitive, those very special Jews, they would wake up at midnight. Every night. Because they were in tune. They were aligned with the divine energy. The energy of the universe. And every night at midnight, the energy of the universe, this is the mood. There's like a universal mood. This is the heavenly mood. The mood of crying mercy, compassion. So they were in tune with it. So every night they would sit and cry and lament over the destruction of the temple. We are not in tune. We're not tuned in. Our dials, our radio dials are not tuned into those channels. <laughs> There's too much noise. It's so loud. All the other channels and the distractions, we, do, we don't hear the delicate, sensitive, heavenly music that's emanating. We're just not tuned in. We don't feel it. That's why we don't sit and lament today, most of us, only a handful of people. And the time to do teshuva for us is either when we read the Shema at night before we go to bed, or as the Alter Rebbe says, elsewhere. When a person feels anyway, you feel... You have, you're in the, you have the blues. We all experience it. You can't explain it. Sometimes you feel elated. You don't know where it comes from. And sometimes you feel down. You have the blues. Everyone has mood swings. The, the best and the... Everyone. The question is to what degree. But everyone has when you're at your peak. And then there are moments that you just feel blues. You just feel sad. You can't explain it. The Monday blues. <laughs> you can't explain it. But what it really means is that it's a signal from heaven. Hashem is telling you, come on, now is the time. Now you're feeling the blues, you feel a little sad, you feel a little... Now is the time to wake up a little Rachmanus. Use that sadness, use this moment to realize your status quo, realize where you're at. And look, feel, be sensitive and feel the compassion, a little mercy and compassion on yourself, on your soul, on the source of your soul, on, on Hashem. Because you're in the mood anyway. Sometimes you're just in the mood. So this is your mood. This is your signal from Hashem. Now is the time. Or, before prayer, because at a time of prayer, time of prayer, the heavenly mood, the heavenly energy is 
That this is a time when godliness is transparent, godliness is available, it's easy for us to connect, to make a conscious connection with godliness during the times of prayer. So for us, spiritual midgets, for us to be able to feel the teshuva, to feel that mercy and compassion in our souls, first we have to have some sense of godliness. If we have no zero sense of godliness, it is no reality. We can't evoke any pity and compassion. We're numb. We don't feel anything. But when, when you're in the mood and you're able to connect with something godly, then you're able to also evoke some sense of mercy and compassion. Look where I'm at. Look how far I am from the truth. Look how far I am from, from, from my reality, from the true reality. So then is a time to evoke mercy and compassion before prayer. Because prayer is a time when godliness is is open and illuminates our soul and we're able to feel something godly. If you're able to feel something, then you can measure the distance of how far you are from your soul and how distant you are, and therefore you can evoke some mercy and compassion. So for us, that's the time, right before davening, and then you go ahead and daven with joy. Or when anyway you have the blues, inexplicably, so that's a time when it's a signal from heaven, now is a time to really... You're feeling sad anyway, feel sad about the real reason you should be feeling sad, which is the sorry state of our soul. Um, but, but ideally, those who are tuned in, those who are plugged in, ideally the time to achieve this would be chatzos, tikkun chatzos. We must find in that prayer the crown of our head is woe to us, for we have sinned i.e. same causes the soul source the ground of our head to topple into the depths of the Kritot and the Sitrapa. Therefore, the Holy One, blessed be He, is called the humiliated king in Pirkei Kehalot, as Rabbi Moshe Cordovero wrote. So there is no humiliation deeper than this, than the ignominy so first he says the uh, language that we say during the Tikkun Chatzais is the crown of our head has fallen. In other words, not just our soul, but even the source of our soul has fallen together with us because we are bound up. Our soul, our conscious soul, is bound up with its source. So when the soul falls, our, the source of the soul falls together with it. And especially referring to Hashem, the ultimate source, that when we fall, we also take Hashem with us. Hashem falls with us. And that's the greatest, there's nothing more humiliating, as he said in the first part of the Tanya, chapter 24, he uses a very graphic analogy, like taking the head of the king and putting it in the toilet bowl. That's what we do when we sin. Taking the head of the king, because the head of the king is with us, whether we like it or not. And we're taking it into, 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 we're sticking the head of the king. Could you imagine the humiliation? Taking the head of the king, taking this divine energy, this infinite, undefined, transcendent energy, and we're taking it and giving new life and new energy to it, which God despises, to ego, to arrogance, the antithesis of holiness and godliness, and inflating this bubble that God despises, so this, there's nothing more humiliating. There's nothing more insulting. So this is in general. 
even without knowing too much specifics about God, just the fact that we're taking, we're taking God Himself, and we're humiliating Him and insulting Him. Especially when a thoughtful person meditates on the greatness of the Infinite One, who permeates all worlds and encompasses all worlds, for God provides vitality to created beings, both in a manner which permeates each recipient according to its individual capacity, as well as in a manner that transcends the and encompasses that. Each person meditating upon God's greatness according to the range of his intellect and understanding, he will be extremely grieved over this. The richer one's perception of God's majesty, the more intense will be his feelings of compassion for his own soul and for its source, the bound and the humiliated king. So even in general, just knowing that what we've done to God is enough to evoke compassion. And the more we understand everyone to his own capacity, the more we understand about Hashem. And he says, because not only does God fill all the worlds, which is the basis of all religion and all mysticism, that the world has a soul, just like the body has a soul. We sense the soul. The energy. The body alone is a corpse. What's the body? The body is nothing. It's the soul. So too, we are the microcosm. So from the same is true in the macrocosm, that the world has a soul. The world is made up of so many different organs, just like the body is made up of so many different parts, so many different components. But there's one soul. And everything that moves, the body moves, whether it's the finger that moves, or it's the brain that thinks, or it's the heart that feels, or it's the eyes that see, it's the same soul. It's the soul that's seeing through the eyes and through the heart and through the... So everything is really has an energy, a for, energy force, the soul that's really am, animating the whole body. So too, when you see a world and there are inanimate objects and there's organic life and there's animal life and there's human life and there are angels and there's spiritual life, ultimately you realize there's a soul to it all. And that's God. That's the foundation of religion. That's the foundation of mysticism. So that's, but that's the lowest level. That's what we call God fills all the worlds. But then there's something a much higher level. God transcends the world. Save of Kalam. God transcends the world. Just like within the human body. You have the energies of the soul, the way it fits each organ in the body, the eyes see, the ears hear, the mind comprehends, the brain comprehends, the heart feels, the legs move. Every organ in the body has a unique energy, a unique life force. But then there's the all-encompassing life force, the whole that's greater than the sum total of its parts, the sense of it all, which completely transcends any particular for example, the soul, the willpower within the soul. What organ, what organ corresponds to the willpower? Willpower doesn't have any organ. Sight has an organ, the eyes. Hearing has an organ, the ears. Intellect, comprehension has an organ, the brain. Feelings, emotions has an organ, the heart. Willpower doesn't have any organ. Where's your willpower? Everywhere. I want to move my leg. I want to paint. 
I want to feel. I want to understand. I want to see. I want to hear. Where's willpower? It's everywhere. It's all-encompassing. Because what's willpower? It's my soul. I want. My soul? My soul is not seeing, hearing, touching. They're all expressions of my soul. Who sees and who hears and who comprehends and who feels and who walks and who talks? It's me. It's my soul. The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. My soul is none of the, those divisible parts. My soul is one whole entity. And that's expressed in will. Pleasure. Where's pleasure? There's no specific organ for pleasure. Pleasure is what motivates everything that we do. Why do we break our head trying to figure something out and spend hours in front of a book and reading and studying and trying to figure something out and trying to master something? Because what's the payoff? Pleasure. Because once you master something and you figure something out, it's indescribably pleasurable. There's no greater pleasure than for the thinking person who figured something out, who mastered something he didn't know before, and now he mastered it. He had an insight. Anything that you do, any activity, what motivates it? What's the payoff? It's the pleasure that it gives you. Some people give them pleasure to talk. Speakers who love to speak gives them pleasure. Some people love to write. Some people love to play music. Some, whatever it is, anything that we do, ultimately, if you had no pleasure in eating, it would be the biggest chore and task in the world. Maybe people have to write, you know, uh, food reviews. Maybe after a while it becomes a chore. You have to, every night you go to another restaurant. <laughs> when you go and it's fun, then it's pleasure. But if you do it, if you have to, after a while it may become a chore. But ultimately, what's behind everything that we do? It's pleasure. That's life. Where's the organ for pleasure? Everything. Pleasure is all over. Pleasure is here. Pleasure is here. Pleasure is behind everything. Because pleasure is your soul. It's your life. So that's the all-encompassing life force, which is not compartmentalized and doesn't have a particular vehicle, vessel. It's not like the, the ability to see has a particular vehicle, vessel, which is the eyes, which is custom-made to match the soul's ability to see. The same as with the ear, and the same as with every organ in the body, which is unique and particular. But then you have the all-encompassing energy. And we all experience that. You know, we have, we have a conscious knowledge, but then we have what we call a subconscious knowledge, like an all-encompassing knowledge that transcends the particular individual knowledge. You know, you went to a symphony. The symphony had a hundred-piece orchestra. It went on for three, four hours. But when you summon up a sense of that experience. You don't have to spell out every note of music that was made in tens of thousands of different parts that went into the symphony. You just have a sense of the whole thing. It's an all-encompassing sense. A friend walks into the room. You feel relaxed. You don't have to think about everything your friend said and did over the 30 years that you know them. You just, you just, it's just an all-encompassing sense that you have of your friend. If you had to sit and spell out all your interactions and everything that ever you have both said to each other and both experienced together, it may take you a few months. That's conscious knowledge. That's linear knowledge. That's what he calls memalikalam, where God fills all the worlds, like the soul fills the body 
God fills all the worlds. Every individual cre- creature has its own unique characteristic and personality and its own unique energy. But then you have the all-encompassing, the transcendent knowledge that completely transcends our conscious knowledge, our conscious self. We don't sense it. You know why we don't sense it? Because it's so there and it's so all-encompassing like we don't see the forest from the trees. Why don't you see the forest? Because all you see is the tree. Because the tree, I can see, it's particular. But the whole picture escapes me. Because it's all over. It's all encompassing. That's why I don't see it. It's right in front of my eyes. And I don't see it. (laughs) Because I can't see it. I'm not capable of seeing it. I'm wired. Consciously, I'm wired to see things linearly. Do you know what the purpose of the rational mind is? It's not to, to absorb information. It's to keep out information. Because subconsciously, you know how much vast amounts of information we absorb? It's like an ocean. We couldn't handle it. So the purpose of the conscious mind is to edit it out, to cut it out, to reduce that ocean into a little trickle. So we take that huge ocean and we reduce it to a faucet and one trickle at a time, one letter at a time. (laughs) It's like taking a three-dimensional reality and projecting it on a two-dimensional surface. What do you get? A cartoon. Our conscious selves is almost a cartoon of our true souls. Our true souls are three-dimensional, six-dimensional, ten-dimensional. It's so rich. It's so profound. It's so deep. It's so dynamic. It's so vibrant. We're a hundred trillion The body even is a hundred trillion cells. We couldn't even begin to wrap our mind around it. Our conscious mind. We can barely conscious of the, of, of, of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We have no clue what's really going on inside in so many levels. So that's what he calls, that's the difference between Mimale Kalam and God fills all the worlds, which is a very limited and a very, God projects himself in a very limited way, in a way that we can absorb and feel and appreciate. But then there's the all-encompassing energy, all-encompassing life, which completely eludes us and transcends our awareness. Not because God is not here, God is up there in heaven. God is is everything and is the whole and the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts it's all over, it's within, it's without but we don't sense it so the more you appreciate and the more you study and the more you learn and the more you get it and you understand it that God is so transcendent not only does God fill all the world which is the foundation of all religion that God, just like the soul fills the body I feel my soul, I feel my energy, I feel I'm alive and I appreciate it, so too, from that I can extrapolate and I can appreciate that God is the soul of the world. You don't lift a pinky without your soul. Nothing in this world happens without God. God not only creates the world, God controls the world. Nothing, no one lifts a pinky, not even a blade of grass. Nothing happens without Hashem. Not my success. Nothing that happens in this world without Hashem. But that's the basic, most elementary and basic level. That's what he calls Mamalikalama. God fills the world. God himself is completely transcendent. God's energy is totally beyond that. It's so beyond our comprehension. And that's the true reality. That's our true life force. That's our true sustenance. So the more and deeper you get into it and the richer you understand the reality of God and you appreciate God's transcendence. And then you realize, I have taken this God, this energy, this life, and I've dumped it in the toilet because of my actions. What have I done? How can I do this? Then your heart bursts with pity and compassion. What have I done? 
How can I do this? It's I've taken this infinite, transcendent God and I've tied him up. I've, I brought him into the dungeon. I'm torturing. Then you weep inside and you arouse mercy and compassion. That leads you to Teshuvah. To, to, to that will lead you to Teshuvah. Then this Teshuvah will have staying power. This return will be for real. comes from within you. It's based on reality. It's gentle. It's kind. It's good. It's sweet. It's uplifting. It's ennobling. It's wholesome. It's, it's with a smile. It's joyful. It's real. And this you only get by studying Tanya. And next week we're going to learn the second element of how to do Teshuvah in a quick way, in a straight way. The straightest path to Teshuvah. And that's what we're going to discuss, the second element, preparing one to true Teshuvah. And that we'll learn, please God, next week. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com